Sandy? How's it going? Happy New Year. Or has it been happy? You're not allowed to say that anymore. It's way past the acceptable time to say Happy New Year. (laughs) What? It's still January. I think you should be able to say it for all of fucking January. No, no. You, it officially ends at January 15th. Everybody knows that. No, especially if you're living in a place that has no seasons and you have no (laughs) idea what time it is, actually. You're like, whoa, Christmas, what? (laughs) Hey, New Year's, what the hell? Um, Because that's my life right now. I don't know. What day is is it? (laughs) Okay, fine, fine. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) Happy New Year. Yes, it feels so good. It feels pretty good. Yeah. That feels pretty good. That's about the only thing that feels good about 2020, though. Oh, you know what? I have one other thing that feels good. Mm, Okay, go. So I'm not sure if you've checked uh, the Patreon lately, but I just need to say to everybody who's um, sending us monthly donations, like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so, so much. We are almost at the JAMA level. What does that mean, Sandy? Oh, my God. That's two live shows. Yes. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, we are $6 away from the JAMA level, which is $1,000 per month. So, I mean... I think it might happen uh, in the next couple of weeks. And if that's the case, then, then, then Sandy, we got to go somewhere twice. <laughs> we got to start planning. I think we promised Edmonton. So we're going to Edmonton. Yeah. 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 And then who will the next city be? I don't know. Ooh. Give us some ideas. Yeah. If, so if you are interested in kind of like convincing us to come to your town, um, let us know because this is our promise. This has been our promise for two years. I'm frankly like really amazed that we got to this level. Me too, <laughs> to be quite frank. And and so we'll we'll keep you posted about uh, anything that gets planned. But over the next uh, 12 months, that is our hope is that we'll be able to do two, two live shows that we coordinate. And then, of course, if you're an organization that wants to coordinate your own live show with us, we'd be more than happy to do that. Because, of course, last year, you know, we were in Ottawa and we were in Toronto and we had some really really great live shows like it was a lot of fun any other good news i have one more piece of good news i suppose i have one more piece of good news that i feel like our our listeners should know about um so our transcriber is rebecca rose and over our little break uh, rebecca rose uh, published a book called before the parade and i think you should all know about it and check it out um it's published by nimbus publishing and uh you should you should take a look at it she's a friend of the podcast and has um helped us out a great deal so please check it out but sandy you also i think have something coming out don't you oh my god yeah weird but it won't be out we should talk about that next week because it won't be well no we could talk about it now (laughs) yes uh, I, over the last three years, in addition to all of my other projects, <laughs> I have uh, edited a contributed volume called Until We Are Free, um, and it was a project allowing Black Canada to write itself, and so check that out. You can pre-order it from a different book list if you just uh, Google that. That's a Black-owned bookstore in Toronto, and so if you're going to pre-order it from anywhere, 
that would be the place to do it. And it will be available on shelves pretty much anywhere on February 1st. Amazing. A different book list if you want to look that up. Mm -hmm. Okay. We asked you folks for ideas for how to start 2020. And and there were a lot. There's a lot of things going on. How you feeling so far, Sandy? What 2020 <laughs> had in store for us. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm already a voracious consumer of the news, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. like that's how this podcast exists. And so, <laughs> uh, but when when 2020 rolled around, the 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 weirdness by which I was refreshing my news apps on my phone, Twitter, even though I'm not tweeting, I was like checking like what was trending, like, oh God, what's happening next? I I was uh, feeling a lot of anxiety about all of the news updates. And I know that other people in my life were as well. It was like one of these things where it was like all we could talk about, um, you know, whether it was uh, what was happening in Iran, whether it was what was happening in Australia, um, frustration over nobody Mm. talking about what's happening in East Africa, which is a lot of flooding, which is related to Australia. Just all this stuff that was happening. Uh, And... Uh, frustration over people giving a shit about royals <laughs> and uh you know i i i found it like i just really difficult uh to focus on any of the things that i was meant to be focusing on and i imagine that a lot of people uh were feeling that way who are our listeners as well yeah i do too and and so you know this episode is not necessarily going to hit on all those issues because you you folks suggested a lot and there's a lot going on but um, we are going to try and wrap up these issues in a context that might help you kind of understand what's happening and what what we think needs to happen. Um, and, and for us to start having really critical discussions about the way that Canada engages with really big issues, whether those are foreign policy issues or domestic policy issues, whether it's related to the economy. Uh, or related to society in general, we're gonna try to we're gonna try to give you a way to understand all of this in this episode. And I also want to like just remind everybody this is our first show of our third season, and so there's a lot <laughs> coming. There's a lot more coming. So so don't feel like, you know, we're not hearing you. We're hearing a lot of your suggestions, and we're hoping to uh, be able to offer listeners something that's digestible because i I had the exact same experience as you, Sandy with the news. I mean, I was really obsessed with refreshing Twitter um, on the days where it looked like the United States may have gone to war with Iran. And the night that the Ukrainian Airlines uh, plane was downed, it was like, it just felt so surreal. And I don't know if you had this experience, but I, I was like instantly transported back to 2003, right at the beginning of the Iraq war and watching um, watching the United States basically go to war. Uh, and of course, there was no Twitter back then and I was barely online. Um, and so I was just like watching CNN all the time, like like in a, in a catatonic state on, on the couch at home. I was, I was uh, 17. It was really surreal to see this on Twitter. And so I hope that we can kind of break through some of the noise and 
we're not going to give you any hope, <laughs> but but maybe through <laughs> but maybe through understanding um, and some analysis that you'll feel a little bit better about uh, trying to explain this to people that you're with, or maybe we can come up together through discussions on the left with what what we should be demanding of our of our politicians or of corporations or whatever it is with whatever issue we're going to talk about. Yeah, it did sort of feel like a, a bizarre version of two thousand and three. It felt like, you know, when we were watching the news 24 hours, and again, I was also 17, it's it's different now, though, because the news is in your hands and you can go to it in a way that you, you couldn't before. You know, as a high schooler, your days are far more regimented than you are as a 30-something-year-old, especially living in America and just, like, uh, just refreshing the news. And the moment that the plane went down, uh, recall that the, the initial news was that it had nothing to do with the escalating tensions between the United States and Iran. Like the initial news was that it had nothing to do with it. So it's just like, oh, just some other thing. Like Boeing is dead. <laughs> like, like Boeing will never make another aircraft. <laughs> it's just like I it was. Mm-hmm. And then to hear yeah. that somehow that news had come out, despite the fact that indeed it was a missile. And then to hear that somehow that was a plane that um, was shot down uh, containing mostly uh, citizens of Iran and Canada, not a single citizen from the United States. Um, And then to wonder uh, what that meant, because uh, if it was a plane full of uh, United States citizens, there's no question in my mind that there would be a war on right now. Um, yeah. but it, but it's not, uh, it's a plane of, uh, of mostly Iranian and Canadian citizens. And so, um, you know, people who are listening to this, to this show, uh, might be connected to some of those people. I know a lot of folks, uh, who are connected to, to some of those people. And mm-hmm. so how to make sense of a situation that seems like, uh, it took place for no other reason than because the United States president uh, was being held to account uh, for his crimes. How do we make sense of that situation where, uh, you know, a lot of people in Canada um, end up killed? What does that mean? How do we make sense of such a senseless situation? Yeah, um, I think that one of the problems that we have in Canada is that we're 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 very sheltered. I think in a lot of ways of of what our foreign policy actions lead to around the globe, and this is this is one of these events that happens that I think you know many most Canadians will always remember this like how they first felt when they heard this because it's like such a, a big issue, and I hope that we can use this moment to start being very critical about our relationship with the United States because already the message that has come out from a lot of um, a lot of people especially in the conservative party and in some elements of the liberal party there's certainly I'm not sure if you've seen any of this online but there's like in the Iranian diaspora there's a lot of division and debate on um, how Canada should react to Iran 
And um, a lot of it has been focused on, you know, this was an act committed by the Iranian army against Iranian citizens and Canadian citizens and 138 folks of mixed uh, citizenry coming to Canada. And I feel like we're falling into this like bizarre logic that then has this fight for uh, Canada to recognize the um, Iranian government as being uh, a terrorist entity. And it's like, okay, we could do that. Um, Calling for sanctions. Okay, we can further sanction Iran. Some people are calling for diplomatic ties to reopen, and that's something that I support. I think that that absolutely needs to happen. But it gets lost that we actually don't control our relationship with Iran. Like Canada's relationship with Iran is not a relationship that is outside of any broader context. It is absolutely defined and shaped and driven by the United States. And so when people are kind of wringing their hands and saying, well, how are we supposed to react to to this when um, when we're so powerless within this the, the world of, of who's in charge and who runs what? It gets really difficult to be able to see past, well, you know, Canada should be involved with the investigation. That's obvious. Maybe we should have our diplomatic ties restored or not. But at the end of the day, we can't stand up to the United States. And we have like we have attached ourselves to a a regime in the United States that is being led by someone who's like an extremely unstable genius. Right. and, and I think this gives us a, real, a moment because it's not just Iran. I mean, Iran's the big issue on, on a lot of people's minds right now because it's so so horrible and so obvious is something that we need to talk about. But everything from like our, our policy about oil and climate change to um, the increased powers at the border. I'm not sure if you saw that mm-hmm. news that has come out. Yep, 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 definitely. One of the things that I've been thinking out about, and this was actually prompted by someone, you know, Nora sent out this tweet, what should we talk about? And uh, one of the, the, the responses was, well, can we talk about how the country to our south is is slowly falling apart? And I just thought to myself, well, I, I would... I need to talk about how much Canada is the United States. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's 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 things um, there's moments that make that super clear, and no more of a moment uh, makes that super clear than than right now. I mean, if if we were um, so much an independent country that isn't isn't uh, beholden um, to another country that truly does make all of the decisions on anything major, then we, you know, we could have coherent conversation about what happens um, when a tragedy like this happens between two states to, to set it up in a simple way. But we can't right now. I mean, um, <laughs> I remember, you know, I was out with, with some of my classmates when all of this was happening. And and someone and the news breaks that, uh, you know, the plane was downed and someone says, if there was a single U.S. citizen on that plane, we're going to war. And of course, a lot of the students are, are really um, nervous because if you have a student loan, um, it means you agree to be signed up for the draft, which in the United States. What? Which, yeah, yeah. You, you have to you have to you have to agree to, to the draft if you want to get a, a student loan. Um, it's more complicated than just wow. like if we're going to war, you're going to be drafted, obviously. But uh, that being said, there was there was tensions uh, in the U.S. for all sorts of reasons. Um, and among the student population, the poor student population, uh, certainly those tensions were super deep. And so people were like, oh, my God, we're, we're going to war if there was a single U.S. citizen on that plane. And then the news comes forward 
Um, and in the U.S., the news comes forward that there weren't any U.S. citizens on the plane. It wasn't they weren't getting the same news that I was, you know, because I I read Canadian news. So I'm like, oh, my God, the plane was full of Iranian and Canadian citizens. And people are like, oh, really? We just heard that there were no U.S. citizens on the plane. Um, bizarre. And then their question to me was, does Canada have a military? <laughs> yeah, they're occupying what's Sowetan. I was like, the way that Americans know nothing about the rest of the world drives me fucking nuts. <laughs> Just like, um, <laughs> yes, Canada has a military. And they're like, oh, my God, so you guys are going to war? And I'm like, you guys don't know how the world works. No, not unless your president cares enough about uh, about Canadian citizens uh, to to like respond in a ridiculous way. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It it wouldn't happen unless uh, you know, like Canada is another uh, you know, like to to put it really crassly is similar to say Puerto Rico in the U.S.'s mind, like just below Puerto Rico. Do you know what I mean? It's like here's here's a place that we can rely on for stuff when we need it, like when we need military. Um, resources, we'll take those from Canada. When we need an ally, we'll take those from Canada. When we need to make sure that a pipeline that's going to be built across the border needs to be built, we'll take that from Canada. When we need to stop um, uh, people who have ties to Iran at the border, we'll take that from Canada and so on. But when it comes to hmm. protecting people from Canada, responding in such a way that, that makes sense, and I, I am not advocating for a war response, to be clear, um, but I'm just saying that, that that, you know, it doesn't even show up in the news. They're like, who cares? <laughs> okay. So um, we are beholden to whatever uh, the U.S. wants. And does that not mean that it's not just the U.S.'s uh, uh, civilization that's falling apart? What, what, what little of it it was anyway, but ours too. Well, there's no better example of that than our relationship with China. And, and no one, I'm, I'm so frustrated by how Iran hasn't come up in that discussion enough in Canada. It's like we, the Canadians, arrested Meng Wanzhou as she was transiting through Vancouver a year ago. She's a senior executive of Huawei and her father is at the top of Huawei. Why did we arrest her? Because she's been accused of having a subsidiary company that may or may not have been dishonest in its filings related to HSBC Bank and some other international banks about them doing business with Iran. It's like... <laughs> for all of the talk that her arrest was under the rule of law and, and when she's super guilty, we have to arrest her, we have to detain her, we have to send her to the United States. It's like, are you kidding me? That is the strength of the evidence that you've decided to declare war on like the one of the biggest telecommunications tele, uh, companies in the world and the crown jewel of China? Like, what's the implication of that? Oh, well, now Canadians are have been detained in China and they're and, and, and facing... Um, you know, life sentences or death sentences. And our, uh, our our farming industry took a hit because China refused to accept different products from Canada, saying that they were, they were moldy or they were not, not prepared properly or whatever. And all of this is just because, the, 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 like, Donald Trump is like, you know what, arrest her because uh, she violated our sanctions against Iran. It's like, we are, we are, we are pathetic in a lot of different ways. And I think that this is... <laughs> This is showing that we have, we, Canada, has no idea what to do in the collapse of the American empire, which is 
pretty clear that we are witnessing that. And and we're not just witnessing that, as you say. We are witnessing that and going, oh, wow, it's so bad over there. At least we're not in the United States. At the same time, being like, we have their nuclear weapons. We're we're all a hundred we're all hundred kilometers to the border. Like we are so vulnerable. And every ridiculous and, and terrible decision that the United States makes and that we go along with puts all of us at risk. And when some of us die because of that risk or are detained because of that risk, it's like, ah. Oh, this is such a tragedy. Oh my God, can you believe this happened? We need to put sanctions on Iran. (laughs) It's like, yeah, like we have to figure out a way to force Iran to make amends in in whatever way that's possible, understanding that there's not going to be any amends possible to say, I'm sorry for shooting down this plane and killing your loved ones. But yeah, we have to figure out a way to exact some sort of amends from Iran. But we also probably should be like, OK, maybe how do we start to untangle this relationship that we have with the United States? Because I don't know. I don't, I don't Climate change is going to kill us fast enough, maybe. Maybe none of this matters because we'll all just die in a massive snowstorm. Anxiety levels going way down on that one. <laughs> but no, you're, you're absolutely right. Like what would happen um, if uh, all these uh, countries that pre- tend to be uh, separate, um, were not quite so beholden to the United States. What would have happened if the United Kingdom and Canada could have come together at, at some point when the U.S. was making the decision um, to, to um, instigate uh, this latest iteration of uh, tensions in Iran um, uh, to, to do something. I mean, even within the U.S., you know, members of the Democratic Party are working to try to constrain um, the amount of power uh, that the president has to do something like that. What would it have looked like if on the outside, uh, countries like Canada and the United Kingdom were not so beholden to the United States that they could not do something similar instead of what happened, which was just looking, looking across, being like, oh, ha, this is happening. Probably there were some uh, back uh, back channel discussions about um, if this escalates into a war, what Canada's and uh, you know uh, countries like the UK's role would be. Um, and and I imagine they weren't anything that were was anything other than uh, we're here to support. And yes, climate change. <laughs> it's just it just feels like. Uh, you know, the more that we uh, delude ourselves in, into thinking um, that in some ways these states are, are, are separate states, uh, the more that, you know, we, we will not be able to address what the actual issues are. Uh, we need to understand clearly that, uh, you know, the decisions are not just coming from our government. They're not. And, and not in some, like, uh, geopolitical kind of, oh, we're all connected, um, uh, globalization sort of way. It's like the United States controls a lot of uh, uh, everything <laughs> that, that happens oh, yeah. uh, in our policy in Canada. And uh, we have to be aware of that fact if we're going to build uh, strong movements, whether those are anti-war movements or climate crisis movements. Yeah, we have to be in lockstep with those movements in the United States. And we have to be um, understanding what levers uh, citizens of the United States are pulling on to try and stop their government from doing what they're doing. Of course, the problem there is that the United States is so obsessed with election cycles that 
you don't really get out of the election cycle logic ever long enough to <laughs> to be able to make those kinds of longer term links. But the the reality is that our movements are so weak that that people in a moment of crisis are kind of scratching their heads saying, OK, who do we listen to? Who's got the right line on Iran? Uh, which which parts of the Iranian diaspora are are the ones we should listen to and the ones that we shouldn't listen to? I mean, that's actually a really there's a massive disinformation uh, campaign on Twitter right now. I found myself in it yesterday and it was pretty wild because um, like there's a movement of Iranian uh, Americans and Iranian Canadians who are saying like the fact that Trump killed Soleimani is uh, reason enough to support him because the Islamic Republic regime is so terrible. And so it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now we've got like people advocating for this kinds of, of, of unbelievable destabilization measures coming from Trump, who literally has no plan. I mean, like, let's not kid ourselves that this guy is trying to do anything other than just be chaotic and, and, and hard to predict. And, you know, thinking about going forward, uh, you know, I, I think that Trump is probably going to win in the next American election. I'm also a pessimist. So I don't know, maybe we can update our, our bets as we get closer. But for for it, it, but in Canada, what's critical is like if if we're listening to CBC radio and we're hearing about uh, like our foreign policy on Venezuela or our foreign policy on Iran or our foreign policy on Iraq, like our soldiers are still in yeah. Iraq. Iraq told yeah. the United States to leave. Canada was like, whoa, this is getting really hot. Let's evacuate our soldiers from Iraq to Kuwait. And oh, OK, everything's cool. They're going back to Iraq. What the f- why the fuck are we there? What the what yeah. the fuck purpose does that serve? Other than for us to bootlick the United States and be like, yeah, yeah, whatever you folks do, we will be there, even if that means Canadians will be caught in the crosshairs. Uh, One of the things that has been kind of surreal also being here is the way, you know, like I'm we're we I mean, we know this. We've known that the Canada is U.S. for some time now. (laughs) Uh, But on the on the on the ground, it has been increasingly difficult for me to get Canadian news. And that's been kind of bizarre. And I think uh, analogous to the way that, you know, um, all the decisions that are made um, about how foreign policy or any sort of government policy really that is connected somehow globally uh, affects us is made um, at, at the at the top in this way where different states uh, talk to one another, corporations can cross borders and so on. But people... Uh, people on the ground can't really talk to each other. People on the ground can't really cross borders in as easy a way as the people who are who have all the power at the top making decisions. So it's been, you know, for some reason, uh, my CBC app started stopped working and told me that it wouldn't work in another country. So I got a VPN and that worked for a while and then it didn't. And then so, you know, I just had to be more and more creative about how I get um, access to uh, to Canadian news. And it's just been, uh, you know, it's just like one of those, it feels like a tactic, you know, the ways that we try to keep people uh, away from one another at the very same time that the people in power are, are consolidating power at the top. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and making things much more dangerous and much more difficult for people to move around. I mean, th- this news that, that Ottawa has... Given the United States uh, customs officers the right to strip search and question and detain U.S. bound soldiers in uh, on Canadian soil, I mean, this was one of the promises with pre pre border clearance that, like, at the end of the day, you're still in Canada, so you can just kind of say, you know what, forget this, I'm not going to try to go into the United States. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, liberals. 
liberals who uh, are doing all of the stuff out of the, the Harper playbook to just do what the United States wants. Um, and actually, like expanding pre-border clearance was one of Trudeau's big promises in 2015. And I only remember that because the Quebec City Airport was like, us too, us too. We want to be able to do that too. It's it's really um, bad. It's really bad. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, this type of stuff has been creeping for a while. Like, you know, um, it, for people who travel regularly, if you if you've noticed um, how much more power uh, the U.S. has on our side of the border since, you know, the early 2000s, it makes it makes no sense. Why would you expand that more? They already have a lot of power unless. Oh, <laughs> we're not different countries, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um the they're just getting uh all all of the power to be able to control um a lot of what happens here. And so think about that when you think about uh what a democracy is and what that really means and when you're critiquing what's happening south of the border. Um a lot of that uh is is happening right in our own backyards um and is affecting us uh, and we don't often hear enough about it and we certainly uh, don't have enough uh, power over it it also is like um if all of this stuff is affecting us why do we not have power over certain jurisdictions i mean that's a question <laughs> you know what i mean what, stri what strikes me is, is really bizarre and that's probably because i'm in quebec and so this is a conversation that happens in quebec all the time but there's really been no discussions about canadian sovereignty um in the last two decades no serious discussions of canadian sovereignty and those were big discussions actually in the 70s and the 80s is how do we become less reliant on foreign powers specifically england and the united states obviously the discussion of sovereignty from england has been in people's minds since basically you know canada has existed but the the idea, I think, for some reason that we've just kind of come to terms with that Canada is like not a fake country and somehow is real and has its own ability to make decisions. And so discussions about Canadian sovereignty and protecting our ability to make our own decisions are nowhere. Like no one is talking about that. There's no like aside from the remnants of the Council of Canadians, which, you know, used to talk about Canadian sovereignty uh, quite consistently. There's no loud voices saying, wait, like we actually do need to think about how do we d disentangle ourselves from a power like the United States so that we actually can make our own decisions and are not de facto at war uh, if, if Donald Trump is having a bad morning or something. And I think that that's really um, it, it's it's a victory from over the over social movements that that discussions of Canadian sovereignty have kind of disappeared from the mainstream. And it's also a sign that the NDP is really, really weak on foreign policy because, I mean, the NDP has never gotten its head around uh, our relationship with China. That has been a consistent Achilles heel for the party since the arrest of Meng Wanzhou. And I have seen nothing from the NDP on um on the latest stuff with Iran that has been anything more than uh, we need an investigation and condemnation. And it's like, OK, that's like what you say on, on day one before you know nothing. What exactly is the left wing vision for a sovereign Canada that isn't being controlled by external political and corporate forces? And. I like the thing that I'm excited by is I think that there's an appetite for this. I think that there's a whole new generation of activists who uh, are probably interested in, in thinking about um, 
of, of how Canada fits into the world because we haven't had these conversations. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear, like, if you listened, if you listen, if you're listening to this episode, like, what do you think about Canadian sovereignty? And is this something you've ever even questioned? Or is this potentially a new location of struggle in this country to, to be able to, to connect the dots between all of the things that are that are putting pressure on us that that do extend from climate change all the way to foreign policy and war? I, I, on that, on that note, I also think that uh, obviously, you know, it, 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 it speaks to a weak NDP. It also speaks to a very weak slash non-existent anti-war movement. And I, I, you know, I think that that is, um, a reality, um, not just in Canada. I think it's a reality. Um, I will say in the, uh, English speaking world right now, and that, that means uh, that people aren't getting the type of information that they need to in order to, um, to, to do the organizing necessary, to do the education work necessary, to build a strong movement. And oftentimes we do implicate the media in, um, in, in our critiques, and here will be no different. Um, I think that the, <laughs> the type of news that we were getting was crucial for sure. You know, like the, the, the updates on what has Trump said? Uh, what is what what are what is Justin Trudeau saying? Like what um, types of uh, supports is Canada giving to to families? Not enough, uh, not fast enough and so on. But we, what we really need is the type of news um, that we were getting in 2003, the deep dives, the, uh, the deep, um, uh, not quick news um, that was, was telling us more about uh, all the entanglements um, that lead up to a moment like this. Um, and that news uh, isn't as easy to get today. And uh, I think that that has an impact on on what people who or, or what would be organizers uh, would be doing right now. That being said, it's not impossible to get that news. That news is in existence. And we just need to be uh, more critical about where we get what type of news we're getting if we are going to build uh, strong movements um, around. And, you know, we're, we're focusing on uh, anti-war measures right now, but this is true uh, for everything from the climate crisis uh, to, you know, what's going on at our border to what's happening at what's what and all of it. Um, we need to be really critical about where we get our news um, and when, where we're educating ourselves about these issues uh, if we're going to build uh, strong movements to counter them. Well, and I'm I'm glad that you mentioned wet sweatin because I think that that's where we need to go in this analysis because you know we talk about foreign policy which I think the left has a lot of uh, work to be able to get its head around in, in foreign policy and in our place in the world as we've said in this episode but our foreign policy is also oftentimes just an expression of our domestic policy and our domestic policy does also mirror the United States domestic policy very closely. I think that as we've seen the increasing militarization of uh, the American police state um, and the American military, it's easy for Canadians to be smug and to say, well, it's not it's not like that here. It's not that bad, even though uh, the foundations of policing are the same in both countries and the foundation of our of our militaries are the same in both countries. 
And what's happening right now in Wet'suwet'en, where, first of all, journalists have been not allowed uh, to the site from the RCMP. There's been a lot of journalist organizations that have condemned that fact, um, other than, of course, the racist piece of shit um, rat boy from fucking the rebel media. But, you know, that's all I'll say about him, uh, who who claims to have been able to get through and get and get back. We have to draw these links because our security forces understand occupation. They understand occupation and protection of private property into the as the core of their reason to exist. And so, of course, we would send our military overseas to 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 engage in occupation, just as our uh, the RCMP and the Canadian forces would engage domestically in uh, in 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 clearing people off of land and making way for private property and private enterprise to destroy the land to make a buck. And I think it's interesting because at this moment we've got the Canadian forces and the RCMP at Wet'suwet'en. We also have the military has just been dispatched to St. John's uh, after 75 centimeters of snow was dumped on that uh, that poor city. And and it's interesting because all of this stuff is cl- tied up with climate change. And if we don't make a better understanding of what the role of security forces in Canada, the United States in relation to climate change is, then we we are going to find ourselves in a very difficult position. I think a lot of the, the Green New Deal advocates are talking about how we need a World War II level mobilization to, to fight climate change. I get why that's a useful rhetoric, rhetorical device. I'm not sure I agree with talking about it like that, because the reality is the military will be seen as heroes, as liberators of from snow and floods when people are stuck in their houses. And fire. Because, and, fire. and fire. Exactly. Um, and they will be at the same time oppressing and hurting and, and, and injuring and, and blocking people from access to lands that they've uh, lived on uh, for time immemorial. And that dual purpose of our security forces is confusing to, I think, a lot of people. And so um, for activists, uh, for lefties, we have to be able to say like this, as climate change gets worse, we have to we have to ask ourselves, what is the point of even having a military? Number one, what should these roles be uh, if if not uh, uh, occupying forces either here or abroad? And then secondarily, as we're fighting corporate power to make changes to try and save ourselves from inc- impending climate uh, catastrophe, what will be the security state's role? It will be to injure and to try and stop uh, activism from being successful. It'll it'll do everything it can to make sure pipelines pass through the land and that makes sure that everybody owns an SUV and that makes sure that, that anybody who's seen as subversive uh, will have their lives made very difficult um, so that they can't continue that work. And I think it's going to get worse in 2020. We've It's been bad for, I mean, we're going into decade two of really intense uh, security responses to Indigenous activism and especially Indigenous activism that is tied to uh, to uh, protection of land and, and claiming of land. And for 2020, I mean, I guess this is our first episode of the of the year, we have to understand, you know, we have to come up with ways to protest, to dissent, uh, and to identify these forces so average Canadians can understand them in the same way too. Something that you said really jogged a just a, a, a truth uh, that I want our listeners to be thinking about also um, kind of a departure from what we've been talking about, but um, very much related to what's and the climate crisis. Is there any better tell 
of how um, uh, racism and white supremacy and colonization is going to affect us all in this uh, as the, the climate crisis deepens, then having um, the the RCMP cutting off access to uh, and and you know likely going to get violent uh, to a community over here protecting another community that looks quite a bit different over here uh, in Newfoundland uh, and you know at the all at the same time as you know they finally found that that Nazi guy who was a reservist um, uh, in the Canadian military uh, in the United States like that I mean that just <laughs> really puts right. a picture out there for how this type of stuff is going to uh, affect us moving forward there are going to be certain communities going to be protected or going to see, be seen as worthy of protection and certain things that are going to be seen as worthy of protection that, that deepen the crisis. Um, and uh, the rest of us will be left to fend for ourselves, <laughs> I think. And that, that analysis has to be a part of any sort of uh, uh, global uh, climate crisis response as well. 2020. <laughs> Normally I would end the episode there, but I just have to end it maybe on a on a no i want to do it i want to do it do you i think you're going to say the same thing that i'm going to say yeah okay why don't you say it <laughs> we have reached drama level <laughs> is that what you were going to say yes that's what i was going to say during this episode's recording roseanne harvey thank you so much <laughs> because in the midst of us talking about uh uh, in fact, in the midst of us talking about education and where we get our news, um, <laughs> uh, we got a donation that pushed us over JAMA level. So um, congratulations. We're going to be going to uh, two cities uh, at some point this year uh, to do some live shows. Uh, thank you for all of those people who funded us for doing that. And, you know, like this is, you know, as we... Okay, so we've been talking a lot about doom and gloom. Um, one of the things that we can do is to organize in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, if getting on the ground uh, isn't the thing that you do, maybe you write or maybe you start a, a podcast. Maybe you start a podcast even if getting on the ground is one of the things that you do. Nora, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so yep. this type of intervention, this type of, uh, of engagement uh, is uh, really important to me um, because it is part of the way um, that I'm hoping to help uh, support people who who want to organize on the ground, uh, who who want to think about things differently. And so Roseanne Harvey and all of the other folks who um, uh, helped to make this possible, uh, thank you very much. There is hope in 2020. Um, there's a lot of despair, but there's also hope. And some of that comes directly uh, from this community of people uh, who uh, make up, you know, the friends of the Sandy and Nora podcast. So uh, thank you so much for continuing to support us. Mm-hmm.